It wasn't by works of our own righteousness that we are saved, but it was according to your mercy that you saved us, your grace, your love. Even before the foundation of the world, you determined the direction. You determined to send your Son to be an acceptable sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. That really, all of salvation is of you. Father, thank you that you even gave us the faith, gave us the repentance to be able to turn from our sin and turn to you. Lord, we thank you for this time of year where we remember our Lord Jesus Christ coming as a babe, and yet perfect, walking a perfect life, living a perfect life, going to the cross and being the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Yet we remember also and look forward to the day when he comes back, not as a babe, but as a conquering king. Lord, help us to turn our eyes to the the future, to know all the things that are going to be happening. And Lord, thank you for giving us literally a glimpse of this in the Revelation. Help us to be in our own lives Christ-centered. So easy to be self-centered. It's so easy to have us in the middle. Lord, may it be that we focus on Jesus Christ and his purposes and his plan and his purpose and and, uh, people and serve. And as we were saying, ABF, to be your slave. Lord, sometimes we want you to be our slave. Forgive us for those times. Forgive us for the times that we try to put you into our box. Father, I just ask that you would give us wisdom to live this life in such a way that it's It's actually pleasing to you. And Lord, we even think of the upcoming Christmas program and and, uh, we ask that we would be praying, we would be asking others to come. Lord, that you would prepare our hearts. That you give us opportunity, not only at the Christmas program to proclaim truth, but also um, before and afterwards with individuals, one-on-one, helping them to understand the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we're here for this purpose to spread the the truth. And Lord, may we be about your business of doing that in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. We're just going to be looking at uh, verses 1 to 6 thereabouts. You know what? I forgot one very important thing. Uh, Brendan and Patty Clancy are are actually down at uh, Bennis Creek, and I know they're meeting. And I said I would be praying for them, and I would even pray for them in the morning or in the service. And I I, I didn't do that. So we're going to pray for Brendan and Patty. Can we do that right now? Let's, Father, again, thank you for calling different ones into service. And Lord, we do pray for Brendan and Patty. We ask that you give them wisdom, Bennis Creek wisdom, as they uh, listen and as they consider. Uh, Lord, it, it is such a great privilege to serve you, whether it's, uh, as we would call, uh, full-time or... We're all in full-time service, Lord. Just help us to be faithful. And I, I pray that you'd give, again, wisdom to uh, Brendan and Patty, uh, whether or not uh, this is the direction that you want them to go, and that you'd give them uh, peace and uh, just a confidence of your calling and a confidence of your strength and the ability that you will give them to fulfill the ministry that you want for them. 
And so, Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of lifting others up before you. And again, we ask that you would be glorified through this whole process in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. You know, we're a stubborn lot. <laughs> we start out spiritually blind, but we stay sometimes self-willed. We have an inborn habit, as one man said, of disobedience that all works against our humility and submission that God desires. Believers who should know better have, had a, hard, have a hard time with a, a simple directive, and that is trust and obey. Isn't it? It is so simple. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And yet people, believers and unbelievers, many times grope in darkness in the sense of not following the light, not listening to what God says. Obviously for unbelievers, it's that they do not receive Christ. But even for believers at times, we get hard-hearted, we get stiff-necked, we decide not to uh, go in the directions that God is clearly telling us to go. I like what uh, the apologist, Christian apologist C.S. Lewis said as he approached this question. He says this, quote, Anyone who has watched gluttons, gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. His point is this. Sometimes it's right before us, something we should have, enjoy, like a glutton, and yet he's just shoveling food down. He doesn't even there's no sensitivity to what he's eating. Do you understand that that's a filet, filet mignon in our, uh, a lobster tail? Just Okay, this is what he, uh, Lewis goes on to say, but pain insists upon being attended to. Okay, what he's saying is this, God slows us down with pain. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. That is true for Christians and unbelievers. Now, for us, I trust that you are sensitized to what the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, wants to do in your life. Right? He will bring us through pain. Sometimes even, you know, that's what the chastisement of the Lord is in Hebrews 12. But those he loves, he chastens. Okay? Is God using his megaphone in your life today? Has he put some pain there? And quite honestly, maybe you're getting angry and bitter against it. Maybe you're getting resentful. And yet that pain, he wants to speak. He wants you to pay attention. Maybe it's nothing more than instruction. He wants you to get his perspective through that pain. Maybe it's he wants you to submit and confess, and it's a pain of disobedience, and God wants to get you to be obedient. I don't know what the pain might be, but are you learning? Or are, are you wasting your pain? Sometimes we waste our pain. We go down the same path, it gives us pain, we keep going down the same path. That's wasting our pain. But he's going to use the megaphone, okay? He's going to use the megaphone. Now, let's turn from being a Christian and how God uses the megaphone to the unbeliever. God sends troubles. And there's no greater trouble than the book of Revelation towards the unbeliever, right? Because in the book of Revelation, you find 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments. 
being poured out on the earth. And what's supposed to happen is men see the trouble, see the destruction, see that everything they've worked towards is being destroyed, literally everything. And they turn to God. The ungodly, during pain, should recognize who he is as creator, who he is as redeemer, and turn to him. But that's what you not you don't see that all the time. Now, again, you do see uh, the 144,000 being sealed. That's chapter 7. By the way, chapter 6 is where the, the sealed judgments uh, begin to be, un, you know, the sealed become, begun to be uh, broken. Because remember, Christ is holding the scroll, seven sealed, break, break, break. He keeps breaking them. And that's what we saw in chapter 6. We see, uh, first of all, there's false peace. And then chapter 6, verse 3, there's war. Verse 5, there's famine. Verse 7, there's death. Verse 9 through 11 is vengeance. See, each one of these is a sealed judgment. Even, you know, you say, well, what do you mean 9 through 11 is the prayers of the saints? But they're crying out to God, and God answers. That's vengeance. And then catastrophe, the sixth seal, verse 12. See, the seals are being broken on this scroll. One, two, three, four, five, six. But, but you, can't only, you can only handle so much terror, even in reading the book. So in chapter 7, he gives us a respite, an inter, uh, intermission, an uh, interlude. Gives us a little bit of time to, to take, uh, take our breath and focus in on who God is because not only is he holy and righteous and a vengeful God, but he is loving and kind and patient and grace, uh, gracious and merciful. So in chapter 7, we find out there's 144,000 Jews that are sealed, men who are sealed. These are the witnesses, 144,000 from, uh, from all the 12 tribes. Uh, again, Jewish individuals. I shouldn't say all. Dan's eliminated. But the point is, is that there's hope. There is hope. God wants to save sinners. And then we see the result, I believe the result of their testimony in verses 9 through 17, and that is an innumerable multitude are getting saved. Uh, a number that no man can, I mean, no one can number. And they're standing around the throne, which again, they've come through the great tribulation, verse 14, and made themselves white in the blood of the Lamb, and they are before the throne of God, which means they are dead, most likely martyred. Many of them martyred. Now again, many of them would have been caught with the, um, with the, um, the, the sealed judgments. Uh, the sealed judgments, you know, war and famine, doesn't, you're not exempted if you're a, a tribulation saint. You may get caught up in that, get caught in the sense of the war and being, being shot and killed. But the point is, the, the witnesses witness during the, the first half leading into the second half, and there's an innumerable multitude who gets saved. Because again, the church is gone, but the witness is there with the 144,000. And if you want to have like a timeline, and again, I'm going to be real careful. I believe this is the timeline, but I think when you see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the beginning of chapter 6, one, seal 1, 2, 3, 4, is the first half of the tribulation. Take this as the middle. So this is three and a half years. This is three and a half years. The total is seven years of tribulation. That's the 70th week of Daniel, the 70th, 70th uh, year of seven weeks, or seven years, excuse me. So the first three, uh, three and a half years, that's the first four seals. I believe 
when you get to verse 9 and you have the, the, um, the saints under the altar, that's kind of like the bridge between the first three and a half and the second three and a half, and then the innumerable multitude. Uh, and the sixth seal is here, the seventh seal ends out the, the tribulation. And I, I say part of that is because in verse 14, it says they came out of the great tribulation. So apparently this is the last half. The great tribulation is the last three and a half years. Now, I, I just want to just, I'm, I'm really broad right now. We've, we've been uh, taking this more specific in previous weeks. Just to say this, God is gracious. Don't miss it. See, remember when we were in Revelation 1-3, it says this, Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Well, what do you mean blessed is the one who reads? We've been reading about destruction. But no, we haven't just been reading about destruction. We are reading about judgment, meaning this. Sin will be judged. Nobody gets away with anything. But what else have we been seeing? God, high and holy, uh, lifted high and holy, right? Chapter 4. Jesus Christ lifted, lifted up. Chapter 5. We find chapter 7, the fact that, that uh, God always has a witness. We find innumerable multitude getting saved. I mean, there's going to be salvations in the tribulation. Are those blessings? Are, is every one of those truths? God is reigning. Sin doesn't get exempt. I mean, it will be judged. People are getting saved, though they are wicked sinners. I mean, all this stuff is uh, glory to God. No, it is a blessing. It's a blessing to read. It's a blessing to study this book because we see who God is. Okay? Now, a question came up last week, Sunday night, Someone pulled me aside and said, when you ended last week, you said, now, and I want you to go to this, this verse. In Revelation 7, verse 14, it says that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And, but John, God's the one that saves. You just said that they washed their robes. Now, it is in the active. I did tell you correct. But I want you to see the difference between divine accomplishment and human responsibility. Okay? I mean, it was a great question. Then I had a couple other people say, I'm not sure what, I, what you meant by that. What do you mean they washed their robes? Is there a part that we play in salvation? In other words, do we have... Uh, do we have to earn our salvation as I prayed? Remember Titus 1, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Let me say, it's all of grace. Your salvation is all of grace. There is not even one little piece, not one little piece that you earn. In fact, so, so that we're very clear, Ephesians chapter 2, and you know the verse, Verses, and you probably quoted them many, many times, but it's worth repeating. Because I don't want anyone here to ever think that we have any part in our salvation in the sense of that, uh, a part of righteousness. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. That's the conduit, through faith. And that not of yourselves, not any of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you say, okay. So what God is doing here in, in uh, writing in Revelation 7, 14, he's putting the emphasis that though salvation is all of grace and all of Christ, 
there is something that we do do, and that is believe and to repent. And, and what I did is I put in your notes, and so this is the first time I've ever done this, um, where I've taken literally a whole page out of someone else's book and just given it to you, okay? Because I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. This is actually coming from uh, uh, Faith Works, pages 23 to 25. Faith Works, okay? And I've split it up because I liked, I was just reading this week and I, I came across this and I thought this, would, this is a good summary. This is a good summary of salvation, okay? And I gave you seven things at uh, divine accomplishment and nine of human responsibility. I did abbreviate a little bit. I didn't put the right the verses in. Um, but I want you to get these. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. This is what salvation, it is all of God. It's like Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Okay, so let's, let's just hit these very quickly. I'm doing this for two reasons. One, make sure that if you say you're saved, that you are depending totally on Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of people walking around, I believe, that are religious. They say they're Christians, but they're not depending completely on Christ, right? You know, they think it's somehow like I'm, I get saved, but then I have to perform to make myself acceptable before God. No. Or the other thing is this, that you can take this home and maybe you can uh, help someone else. Maybe you have a friend, neighbor, sister, brother, whatever. Okay, first of all is this. Number one, Christ's death on the cross paid the full penalty, penalty for our sins and purchased eternal salvation. His atoning sacrifice enables God to justify sinners freely without compromising the perfection of his divine righteousness. You can go to Romans 3, it says, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You'll notice that in that's where it's found. Christ, it's in Christ. Um, the righteousness is found in Christ. His, his resurrection from the dead declared his victory over sin and death. Okay? All of God. Okay? Divine accomplishment. Our salvation is by divine accomplishment. All of God. Number two, salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Underline the word alone. Okay? Alone. Plus nothing. That's Ephesians, which we just read. Number three, sinners cannot earn salvation or favor with God. Because those who are in the flesh, Romans 8 says, cannot please God. So nothing that I do. Number four, God requires of those who are saved no preparatory works or prerequisite self-improvement. You know, like seven sacraments or five pillars. There's no preparatory work. We're damned sinners. And we come to Christ and receive what he did on the cross, which was perfect act of obedience and perfect passive obedience on the cross itself. And that is imputed to us. It's not like we kind of get ourselves ready for salvation. Clean myself up a little so I'm a little bit acceptable before God. Okay, number five. Eternal life is a gift. Can I say that again? Eternal life is a gift. For the wages of sin is... Yeah, want to work for it? Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Number six. Believers are saved and fully, fully justified before their before their faith ever produces a single righteous work. That's very, very important. 
Because Ephesians 2.10, which we just read, but then verse 10 says, his workmanship, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The idea is this, we get saved, and now we start producing good works because we're saved. Or to say it simply, apple trees produce what? Peaches. No, apples, right? Apple trees produce apples. You've got to get saved to start producing fruit of righteousness. Some people try to reverse that. That's not, self, that's not the gospel. So we produce righteous works from the point of salvation forward. And then finally, Christians can and do sin. How many of you sinned this last week? Really? I'm preaching to a bunch of sinners? <laughs> Even the strongest Christians wage a constant, intense struggle against sin. That's the Romans, or Romans 7. If you have Revelation 7 there, it's Romans 7. Genuine believers sometimes commit even the worst of sins. I mean, think of David. Think of David. Divine accomplishment. All of God, all of grace, all of mercy, all of God. <laughs> but, and this is where we're about, you know, the business of, of telling others about Christ. It's not just divine accomplishment, but there's human responsibility, something that we need to do. That's where we get to the revelation where it says they washed their robes. Because in Acts 16.31 it says this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in the imperative. That's something that Paul is telling the Philippian jailer to do. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The believe is in the active. The saved is in the passive. What does he mean? Believe on Christ and he'll save you. <laughs> so alongside the above truths, we have these truths. The gospel calls sinners to faith, joined in oneness with repentance. So there's faith and repentance. A turning, repentance is a turning from your sin and belief is turning to Christ, turning from, turning to. Or as Paul said in Acts 20, Verse 21, repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is demanding. Turning away from your sin, but as the, the author said, it is not a work, but a divinely bestowed grace. Repentance is a change of heart, but genuine repentance will also affect a change in your behavior. Now this is huge, because we are called to turn from our sin to Christ, but in the, if, if that has truly happened in your heart, that's because God has been gracious to you. He has given you the gift of faith. And not only that, but there should be a transformation, not only in your thinking, but over time in your behavior. You find somebody that says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to live like that. You've got to start asking, are they a true believer? Number two, salvation is all of God's work. Now you sound, well, I, th I thought we're on... I got the divine accomplishment. What do you mean? Well, those who believe are saved utterly apart from any effort on their own. I want to just make sure that we are real clear on this. It's not about our own effort. Because even faith is a gift of God. That's what Ephesians 2.8 is referring to. So again, God gives us the, the gift of faith. Real faith, therefore, cannot be defective. And it cannot be short-lived. I... There's no such thing as, oh, I got saved and I'm, no, I got saved, but now I'm lost my salvation. 
If they say, I'm no longer a Christian, I don't want Christ, I I reject Christ, and they said they were a Christian before, that means whatever they had wasn't true faith. True faith is from God. What does he say in Philippians? Being confident of this this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, what? I mean, he's going to accomplish it. He's going to see it to the end. He's going to see it to the end. True faith endures. Number three, the object of faith is Christ himself. Not a creed, not a promise. You're not calling people to a way of life or a creed or a promise. You're calling people to Christ. He's the object. Faith, therefore, involves personal commitment to Jesus Christ. In other words, all true believers follow Jesus. And that's what John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him. He's the object. Now, you say, well, that's super fit. That's obvious. No, no, it's not obvious. Sometimes people start, you know, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to live a good life. Well, first of all, you can't. Two, it's not about the good life. It's about following Christ. If you're a Christian, remember that. It's not about adding a few good things in your life. It's following Christ. He is the master. And again, over and over, as we said in ABF, and I said in men's prayer, because this has been really hitting me, he is the master and we are are his slaves. And if you say, I don't like to be his slaves, then you you misunderstand Christianity, because that's what it is all about. You know what Christianity is? is He's saying, listen, full and uh, unconditional surrender. When you come to Christ, that's actually what's happening. Full and unconditional surrender. You are surrendering yourself to me deny yourself take up your cross and follow me that is full unconditional surrender that's what you've done now again because we're sinful and we have our agendas many times you know oh i didn't understand all that well maybe you didn't under but if you didn't understand any of that like then who did you what did you do then oh i just accept him because he's gonna make my life better That's not what he said. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Full, unconditional surrender. That's what's happened. How about this? Number next one. Real faith inevitably produces a changed life. That makes sense. Like when a life doesn't change, and I always say this, are you trying to tell me that the holy, omniscient, omnipotent God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, invaded your life through the Spirit of God and nothing happened? No, life has changed. We're a new creation. Next one, the gift of God is eternal life. Includes all that pertains to life and godliness. Not just a ticket to heaven. Please, be careful. As you want to, you know, we're going to have opportunity. Christmas program, you're going to be with people at Christmas and everything else. Hopefully you have a chance to share the good news. Remember, you're not just selling a ticket. You're pointing a person to the Lord. You're pointing that person to a person. Follow him. Believe on him. Turn from your ways and turn to him. Right? See, this is, these are truths that Christians, it's not a ticket to heaven. Oh, just accept him and think about the rest of the stuff later. No, no, no. He is the Lord. Next one. Number what? Seven, six. Jesus is Lord of all. And the faith he demands involves, again, unconditional surrender. I just used that. Unconditional. He's Lord. That's why uh, Romans says we're slaves of righteousness. Number, next one, those who believe will love Christ. 
And this is where it really becomes, because you start, you know, you have people that make a profession, and maybe it's a false profession, because you start wondering, do they love Jesus? He says this, if you love me, you will, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love produces obedience. So there's going to be a love that produces see, two different pieces there. Love, you're going to love. Last two, behavior is an important test of faith. Behavior is an important test. Obedience is the evidence that one has real faith. 1 John 2, by this we know that we know him. By this we know we know him. By this we know that we truly know him. Hmm, John, what are you going to say if we keep his commandments? What did you say? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, if we obey him. And then he goes on. He who says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. (laughs) He might even be deceived. See, the truth is not in him. He thinks he's saved, but he has no interest in me. He has no interest in loving me and my ways and my directions. And then finally, genuine believers may stumble and fall, but they will persevere in faith. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, will endure to the end. I gave you that list. It's really quick. We, we could do a whole messages on that. But, but we got to remember, we are not talking about just a creed. We are talking about a person. We are calling people to submit themselves, turn from their sin, their way, their purposes to Christ. And just keep it in mind that it's the person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Master. Yes, one of the benefits of being one of His is that you don't have to endure hell. <laughs> But we put that as the main thing. That's not the main thing. You know what the main thing in this universe is? Glorify God. By obeying what he says, we glorify. By believing what he says, we glorify. By believing on Jesus Christ, we glorify him. Okay? So put those, and again, I I hope that you can, maybe these will become parts of when you say, you know, well, what do I do? Well, do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see God as high and holy lifted up? Do you see that? You see that Christ is the one that came and died for your sin, the perfect Lamb of God, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, not for himself, but for us. Then turn to him. He's the one that's going to give you mercy and grace. He will even give you the faith to believe and the repentance to turn. It's all of him. It's all of him. So when we, so that's the long answer to that short question from last Sunday night, when it says they wash their robes well, notice what it says. They wash their robes white. Excuse me. They wash their robes and made them white. What? In. In. Underline that. In the blood of the Lamb. In the blood of the Lamb. It's all of God. It's all of Christ. That's how they did it. But they had to believe. They had to repent. That's how their robes were washed. I almost said any questions, but I forgot I'm preaching. I'm not teaching. Okay, but you get the point. You get the point. And you say, well, how do I know if this is all true? Acts 17, verse 30. Now commands all men everywhere to repent. This is Paul speaking. Commands all men. God, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he, that's Christ, will judge the world in righteousness By the man whom he, that's God the Father, has ordained, he has given assurance. Now, this is how we know it's true. 
I mean, how do you know that Allah is not true? How do you know that the 300 million Hindu gods are not true? How do you know that the Mormon God is not true? Because He, the Father, has given us this assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection says everything else is false. He's the only true God. Right? So King Jesus came to rescue us by dying a perfect death on the cross and He now demands that we repent of our sins and trust Him. Okay, let's move on. Okay. I needed to take that little, little detour because we, we need to know what the true gospel is, right? I'll tell you what, there is so much false gospel out there. So much of this, oh no, God's going to make, Jesus is going to make your self-esteem better. I just read that yesterday. Jesus is here to serve you. It's putting God in a box. It's our little genie. It's our little servant. He's master. We're slave. We reverse that very quickly. So if you watch Joel Osteen, he reversed it, right? He, Benny Hinn, he reversed it. False gospel, laudable. T.D. T. T. Jakes reversed it. He doesn't even believe in a trinity. Okay? Be careful. What is the one thing that we said? False peace. A lot of, there's going to be a lot of false religions in the end days. We are living in the end days. If you believe the truth, you are the minority. Hands down, no question. You are the minority. Because the false gospel, and I'm not talking Hinduism, I'm talking, they say Christian, is prosperity theology. Receive Jesus who make everything good for you. No, no, you receive Jesus, you might die for the faith. It's hard. Okay, let's move on. That's, I will hold to my word. Let's move on. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. I only have about 15 minutes, so we got to... Hey, we love the Lord, don't we? Don't we love his truth? We want to stand for his truth. Some of you may have to die for that truth. Because that is repulsive. That is absolutely repulsive to religion. Religion hates the idea that you don't add anything. See, their religion says, I earn something of my salvation. God says, no, no you don't. It's all of me. And therefore, I get all the glory for all of eternity because it's all of me. Right? Now, let's go to chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, what is seventh seal? Wait a second. He opened the sixth seal in chapter 6, verse 12. Remember 6, and it was a great earthquake, the worst earthquake probably that the world has ever seen. Then he gives us a, a one, one chapter respite. Now, we, now he's going to go back to the seventh seal. See, we're, we're picking up the story right where we left it off. All he's done is inserted a parenthesis to give us encouragement in chapter 7. So now the seventh seal is being opened. And this is, again, this is the last of the seals. This is the last one. And yet we're only in chapter 8. And there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I'm going to just give you a few thoughts on about five different words. First of all, there's silence. A holy hush. Now you've got to put this in the context. Silence in heaven? We've been studying what's in heaven. 24 elders worshiping and praising God with a loud voice, saying with a loud voice. We saw in chapter, what is it, 5? Uh, the angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. That's millions. Millions of angels. And now we saw praising him in chapter 7, an innumerable multitude in heaven around the throne, 
praising God. And that doesn't even mention all the other angels and the four living beasts. I mean, can you imagine the noise? I was thinking today, it was kind of loud. I don't know. I mean, it was great. It was loud. God likes it loud, but I was just thinking it's loud. I mean, when we were singing, I don't know if it was me or... But that's good. God likes it loud. You know, if you can be loud at a game, be loud here, okay? Silence. Billions of creatures. Billions, perhaps even, well, million, possibly billion. well, no, if you, if you count all of, uh, of the church would have been around the throne. So now you're talking billions and billions go from exaltation and praise, loud, to total silence for about a half hour. Something is implied here, and that is this. By the way, the fact that they did it shows awe and expectation. See, they've been watching these seals being broken. They see the slaughter on earth, both by the, um, to the unsaved and to the saved. That's the innumerable multitude. They see the carnage. They see what's happening. Then they see seal six open, and, and it's the worst catastrophe up to that point. That's found in chapter six. Now the last seal, and, and the implication is they know what's going to happen. In other words, when it's being broke, they have knowledge of what's going to happen in this last seventh seal. And there's this holy awe, this calm before the storm, or as Chuck Swindoll say, said, opened mouth silence, like their jaw dropped open. And across the billions of people and creatures and angels that were singing, there is just stunned silence. And John adds, for about a half an hour. Now, if I, I only was silent here for maybe 15 seconds, A half hour would be like an eternity. But they see that now God is finally going to give his last judgment. And they're just like, wow. But the grim reality of judgment, the reality of joy, I'm sure, that sin is going to be defeated and Satan is going to be destroyed and Christ will be exalted. And so you got to see this half hour, those things are going through everyone's mind. So the silence. And then number two, the standing of the angels. And I saw seven angels who stand before God. That's definite article. The standing ones. These are angels that are identified as the ones who stand before God. Now many stand. Uh, Theologians have called this the presence angels because the word before is enopia. It's uh, before or standing before, that type of scenario. Again, standing before and I was listening to one guy, and he was saying, uh, oh yeah, Jewish literature actually names them. Like Raphael was one, and Rephaim, I guess, was another, and I'm not going to, because nobody knows. They just say, who knows who they are? They're just seven angels. Apparently had particular purpose. This was the purpose. Although we do know this in Luke 1.18, or 1.19. Luke 1.19, it says, Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, So maybe Gabriel is one of the seven, okay? But again, we know this, that there are many, many different types and rankings of angels, like Ephesians 6, powers and principalities and rulers and dominions. 
cherubim of the Old Testament, seraphim of the Old Testament, archangel like Michael. There's all kinds of ranks. And, but these are seven particular, seven that are going to blow the trumpet. Okay, so we have seven angels. And then number three, the sequence. And I saw the seven angels, verse 2, who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. Now again, we've gotten through the first half of the tribulation with seal judgments 1 through 4. Seal 5 is the middle, I think. We've already seen seal 6 judgment happen. That's beginning the final tribulation part. But now we're going to see seven more trumpets. Now, I want you to get this. The seal was open in, in verse 1. The trumpets start to blow in verse 7. I'm going to draw this conclusion, and it's in your outline, that this is a sequential. Could you show me that? Do you happen to have that? In other words, some people say it this way. The seven seal judgments are the same as the seven trumpet are the same as the seven bowl judgments. If you look down the... And they're just giving them different names for the same event. But I believe, no, I believe you have this one, three, four, four. Right around here is the middle of the tribulation. This one has been opened, and this seventh seal includes the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet includes the seven bowls. I believe the seventh seal contains the trumpet and bowl judgments. That these will be sequential. That's how they happen in the book they're chronological, that they're successive, they're progressive, or if you will, I like the word telescopic. You, telescopic, like, you know, like in other words, you get to the end, and that's seven sealed, because it only says Jesus has one scroll, seven sealed, right? So now you have this, and they're going to start, the, 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 angel, or the angels are going to start blowing these trumpets. And when the last one is blown, in, the, in chapter uh, 12, I believe it is, or 11, then in chapter 16, you have the bold judgments coming out of that seventh trumpet. And, they, and, and the thing is, you might say, well, really? Because there's others that are going to say the, the uh, uh, successive, you know, like uh, they all represent the same event. But that's not the flow of Revelation. You see the flow of Revelation, seventh, he opens the seventh, all of a sudden now you got the trumpets. Let me give you a couple reasons. If you just look at the, the first of each one of them, the first seal judgment, the first trumpet judgment, the first bowl judgment, this is what you get. The first seal judgment is false peace. The first trumpet judgment is a third of the trees get destroyed. And the, fir and the, and the first bowl judgment is another different, different catastrophe. So you say, no, that doesn't fit. It doesn't fit that these are just you know, looking at the same event. Not only that, but when the bowl judgment is open, it says this is the last plague the last plague. And even the intensity gets greater. Here you see a quarter of the earth population getting destroyed. Here you see a third of it being destroyed, which means half of the world's population is destroyed by this point. And then this one, it starts using the word every. It's total. When it comes to the bold judgment, it probably happens all within just a few days, and it is complete, complete, okay? So because of that, I think the best way to is like that little uh, chart in your thing. Actually, you've got a different chart where it says seal seven leads in the trumpets and the seven trumpets leads into the bowls. So uh, I won't argue about it with you in the sense I, I still will love you if you're wrong, but if you don't want to... <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, I, I do think this is the best way. I mean, just take the book chronologically. That's what you see. 
six, open, seven, open, bowl. Okay, I got it. Number, let's go to letter D, the supplication of the saints. The supplication of the saints. This is very fascinating. Again, I'm almost, I'm getting done, all right? Supplication of the saints. Verse 3, the second part. The prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. Okay, the prayers of the saints. Well, let's go back to verse 3. The beginning of verse 3. Then another angel, now again, you have the seven, but another, having a golden censer. That was just something to carry hot coals in. Sometimes they, uh, you see it in certain type of churches. Sometimes it's on a chain. You know, it's like a goblin. They put the hot incense in there. Many times it was just a pan, okay? Just a pan to carry. Um, I mean, it was a nice-looking pan, <laughs> but it was a pan uh, to carry hot coals in. But another angel having a censer came and stood at the altar. Now, first of all, let's answer the question. Is this another angel, Jesus Christ? Some commentators say yes. But again, Jesus has already been, been identified as whom? The the Lamb. The Lamb. And even though we find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord, you never see that him referred to as, angel, as an angel or the angel of the Lord after his incarnation. Okay? So you put all that together. Oh, oh I'll give you even another better one. Uh, where it says, and another, that word is alas. He could have used the word heteros. He could have said another of a different type, but he used another of the same type. Well, he just named seven angels. So it can't be Christ because that's another of the, another of the same type. Okay? So it's not Jesus, it's just, uh, it's just another angel. Exactly what the English text says. Um, again, what is this angel doing? He was given much incense. That he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So, again, the golden censer was a saucer-shaped bowl. It was like a fire pan, that's what it was used for. It was where the coals would be taken from the brazen altar, and they would take some of the coals from the brazen altar, and the brazen altar is where the, the, the sacrifices were made of the animals on the brazen altar, and some of the coals were dipped in twice a day by the priest, and they would dip in some of those uh, hot coals and put it in the, the censer, and then, uh, I wish I had, do you have that? He would, uh, because the, uh, the brazen altar was outside of the holy, holy place. Do you have that little uh, chart we showed, babe? Um, okay. Well, that's, that's a lot of work, right? there. Okay, the point is, is down here is the brazen altar, down in the baptism, okay? And what you do is you'd walk through, no, excuse me, let me see this one. No, this is here, okay, I got my bearings, okay. You get the court, the brazen altar is right here. And then you would go into the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies you have, uh, the, uh, the, the candelabra, the, what is that called? The, help me out here, the seven, the, the menorah, the lampstand. Okay, you have the lampstand, the showbread. This is the, uh, this is the curtain that separates the holy from the holy of holies. This is the temple. See, this is the temple. This is the court of women. Then the court of the Gentiles is over here. You kind of get your buried. I know this is, I tried to find a good picture. I couldn't find one. It's just the simple thing I wanted. Anyways, so you go through here and the priest would offer the sacrifices here. This is where the slaughter took place, the, the labor. Then they would go up and then, like I said, you had the, the, the light stand, the, the candle, 
and then you had the showbread, and then you had the, the, the golden altar in the temple, and then that was just before you passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies. So what did the priest do? What is being pictured here? Grabbing some hot coals out of the burnt offering. Then you walk up, and then they would put incense, gum incense, and it would be aroma because it was being burned in the hot coals. Well, the coals represent purification, right? God, they have just sacrificed for Christ. They, excuse me. They have just sacrificed for their sin. I'm talking in the Old Testament. So the, the coals are there, and then they would put the coals in the censer, and the censer also would have incense, and it was brought and placed in the uh, golden altar. Again, the golden altar is different than the brazen. Brazen sacrifices were offered. The, the, uh, the uh, golden altar was the place where the incense were burned, and there was like a sweet aroma to the Lord. A sweet, but notice what the sweet aroma is. Again, these incense was symbolic of worship and prayer. It was a reminder that intercession to the Lord was uh, the character of the sweet incense. But here, what, what, notice what it says. He was given much incense, by whom? God, that he should offer with the prayers of the saints. So now the picture is this angel and the, the, the incense with the prayers of the saints. And now this is a beautiful aroma to God. And it was placed on the golden altar that's already burning. Now, in this scenario in heaven, it's already burning. I just gave you what they did in the Old Testament. In fact, I'll tell you what. Go to Luke chapter 1. Because you see John the Baptist's father doing the same thing. And, and, and if you were a priest, you only got to do this probably once in your entire life. Because, I mean, there was a waiting line. Not everybody even got to do this once in their life as a priest. But if you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 8... You see, uh, here, let me see if I can get it. Okay. Now, again, this is Zechariah. And uh, verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as a priest, so he was in that time frame of age before God, in the order of his division, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. See, this was his big moment. As a man, I mean, as a priest, you've been waiting for this all your life. To burn incense, because again, it only happened once. To burn incense, when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, now notice what's happening in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. What do you mean? Well, this is the point. When, oh. <laughs> when you, thank you so much. She is so good. I'm telling you, she's like clicking around. Like giving you the verse, this is great. Anyway, so Zechariah was, um, he, now again, because this is not in heaven, this is on earth. He would have grabbed the uh, hot coals from the morning sacrifice or the evening. This happened again twice a day, morning and night. He would have grabbed it, put it in the censer, put in the uh, incense. He would have carried up through the, to the holy, not the holy of holies, that's only once a year, holy, but he would have gone right past the, 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 the candles the showbread, and right there would have been the, the golden altar where the incense would have been placed. He would have placed it in and, and everything would have smelled. And that was the aroma. But notice what was happening. 
The people at that very moment were praying because that's what they... See, the people were praying and now he did a symbolic act of saying, and this is a sweet aroma to God and he hears and he's going to answer. See, it's all working together. They pray, Zechariah is offering the incense and it's a sweet aroma to God. God loves our prayers. God wants to hear from you. Have you been talking to him? It's a sweet aroma to our Father. I mean, sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes our prayers are answered by yes. And sometimes what does he say? Wait. By the way, because he tells us sometimes wait, we just forget about it. See, we start losing hope. Oh, I'm not going to bother. He never answers my prayer anyways. Look at verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints... Get that, with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer. <coughs> now what do you mean, took the censer? See, the, the censer was what you brought the incense. Now he takes the censer and fills it up with fire from the altar. That's the golden altar, the one just before the, the Holy of Holies. And threw it to the earth. And that's what begins the, the final judgments. The seventh seal is open, they start, and then the trumpets go, and then the bold judgments, and the next thing after that is Jesus Christ comes back. All that begun by the prayers of the saints. By the way, we saw the prayers of the saints. The prayer, I mean, the saints under the altar in what? Chapter 6, that's what I've been referring to, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. They were under the altar praying, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Come on, just... You know, gave him a, a white robe. Just be patient. See, we pray, we pray, we pray. It's not always answered. But it's going to be answered one of three ways. Either yes, maybe what we're praying is a no because it's not within God's will. Or maybe it's wait. That's what this was. It was wait. They had been praying. How long, O oh Lord? Praying, praying. Now he says, okay, take those prayers that have been prayed. Add them with the incense because it's a sweet aroma to me. I'm going to answer now. Now, when you pray, it's always answered some way. Don't, don't falter. And it's in verse 5, and there was noises and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. And the point is this. God's judgments and the prayers of his people are connected. He acts because they prayed. He acted because they prayed. That's why I want to encourage you. Pray. Pray for, pray for the things that are happening in your life. Pray for this Christmas program. If you're not in the Christmas program, come here on Thursday at 7 and pray. Oh, he, he'll answer whether I... No, no. It's a sweet incense, a sweet aroma to the Father. And the trumpets start. Look at verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, and this is the last of the five words, sounding, the sounding of the trumpets. Now again, in, in, uh, in, in the New Testament, trumpets were never used just as a musical instrument. It was always had to do with like the arrival of a king or the commencement of a, a, a mighty act or judgment, something like that, okay? And we'll go on that in a little bit more in a couple weeks. But the point is, it was never just for musical instrument. There was a purpose, in fact... I watched a whole 10-minute video on the Civil War. Did you know there was at least 30 different trumpet calls during the Civil War? Everything from stop 
fix your bayonets, unfix your bayonets, be ready to charge, don't charge, and then you have revelry. You know, revelry, rev, rev, revelry. Yeah, whatever it is. But the point is, there's 30 different things. I mean, they did everything with the trumpet. I mean, they didn't have the cell phone back then. Hey, by the way, go to the left. You know, everything was done by the trumpet. Now, I only bring that up because each one of these trumpets, when it was blown, had a different judgment. Probably sounded different. I mean, look at, let's just very quickly, because each time in, in verse 7, it says, and the first angel sounded in bloody hail and fire, and one-third of vegetation was destroyed. So now, whereas it was a quarter of the earth, now one-third. Now that means half of everything is destroyed. And then the second trumpet, in verse 8, it says, the second angel sounded in a fiery mountain from heaven, and one-third of, one of the oceans were polluted. That's salt water. Number three, the third trumpet, a falling star, and one-third of the fresh water. I mean, it, it's actually the first four trumpets creates an ecological disaster on this earth. An ecological disaster. Worse than any global warming. And I know you're going to get sick of me saying that, but I'm so tired, you're not going to destroy the earth. God will. And quite honestly, I think it's in direct proportion to where this earth is going. You want to save it? Let me show you what I'm going to do to it. No, I really mean that. I, the more I've thought of it, because this is not just in the United States. This is a global thing. God is going to disprove humanity. And then the fourth, darkness, a third of the sun, moon, stars. That's the first four against the earth. And then the, the final three is the, the, the angel says in verse 13, woe, woe, woe. And each one of those woes is the last of the three trumpets. It's the fifth trumpet judgment, the sixth and the seventh. Woe, then the fifth. Woe, then the sixth. Woe, and the seventh. He names it out like that. So then you get these trumpets. And the last trumpet, when it opens, opens the bold judgments, and within just a few days, everything comes to a conclusion and Christ comes back. What do we learn? God uses physical disasters to communicate spiritual messages, okay? He wants, what do I mean? Physical disasters should draw people to repent. Many do, many, many don't. Many, many don't. Number two, God's harsh judgments have a holy purpose. This judgment is not just about just, he's mad. <laughs> he judges sin he judges Satan, he judges the, judges the ungodly, he saves sinners, and he exalts Christ. There's a holy purpose in all of these harsh judgments. Number three, finally we need to remember that God, not finally, but we need to remember that God won't stop until his plan is accomplished. I love this. God finishes what he starts. Isn't that great about our salvation? He finishes what he starts. Always finishes. Isn't that just great? He who begun a good work in you will accomplish it. Will accomplish it. And then the final one, this is so obvious once we saw the prayers of the saints. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. And let me add that your prayers are a sweet aroma to the nostrils of God. Now again, I understand God is spirit. But do we see how sweet our prayers are to the nostrils of God? 
And if we do, I think many of us will have to say this, Lord, forgive me. Because I have used prayer simply to get what I want. It's not about that. It's to, to ask God to do his purposes. And your prayers are like that sweet aroma of incense in the holy place going up to the nostrils of God. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. We need to pray, but we need to pray according to his will, his purpose, and his glory. Let's stand.